Can I have you open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation chapter 14? And for those of you who are regulars, I apologize that I have to keep opening up every study with the same basic thought, but we have new people that join us, and I just can't jump in and leave them in the dark about what we were doing and so on. So as we come to chapter 14, as we have said the last couple of weeks, this is a, a kind of a different different chapter, and it's it's a little difficult because in chapter 14, things are talked about as if they've already taken place, and yet we get into chapters 15 through 19, and they we see them take place in those chapters. So it's a little confusing, but as we have said uh, in Greek, when somebody, uh, when one of the writers wants to um, express something that hasn't happened yet with total confidence that it's going to happen, they will put it in the past tense. So we've talked about that, okay? So just keep that in mind going in. Chapter 14 seems to be a table of contents or uh, a preview of coming attractions, put it that way, okay? A uh, table of contents highlighting the things that will take place in chapters 15 through 19. So we got as far as verse 6 last time. So let's read that verse again. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now we have said that the Antichrist, the Antichrist is going to come preaching a gospel, quote-unquote. The word gospel simply means good news. And the people of the world are going to receive it as good news because it's what they want to hear. They're, they want their ears tickled, and this guy's going to be the ultimate ear tickler, okay? Uh, so he's going to come with a gospel. But it's not going to be the true everla everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Not going to be that gospel. It, I believe it's going to be a man-centered, humanistic gospel for that time in human history, not the gospel of eternity. Now, Paul did tell us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, that people would come preaching a different Jesus and another gospel. So, we, you know, we're used to hearing that, all right? And uh, this is going to really escalate uh, as, we, as, as, as we come into the tribulation period. We'll be in heaven, but as, you know, the world comes into this period of time we're studying. And... Um, I believe that it's going to be the ultimate humanistic gospel. Humanistic in the sense that man-centered. You can't get more man-centered than a gospel that basically teaches that man is God. The ultimate man-centered gospel. But the everlasting gospel, guys, is the true gospel for all eternity. It's the same gospel that was first introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise. Uh, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. The idea of I shall put uh, enmity between your seed uh, and uh, her seed. Women don't have seed. The man has the seed. The woman has the egg. This is the first glimpse of the gospel, uh, the virgin birth. All right, the virgin birth. This is the same gospel that was preached to Abraham. See, the gospel was preached to Abraham? Absolutely. Genesis, excuse me, Galatians 3, verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations 
shall be blessed. You say, well, how does that work? Go online, listen to Galatians 3, verse 8. We win it. You'll be, it's kind of shocking. Um, what I believe the Lord did to preach the gospel to Abraham, and not just Abraham, to all of those people living in his day and so on. I'll let you dig that out on your own. But again, this is the same gospel that was preached by Jesus. Now, there are those who claim Jesus didn't preach the, the, the gospel Paul preached. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I mean, I've heard this from people one time on the radio. I never heard this before. A pastor was teaching, and he said this. If the words of Jesus are in red, the words of Paul shall be, should be in gold. Because Paul, he, he was given the gospel for the church age. You know, no. Um, you can check out Luke 24, verses 46 to 47. After Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended back to the Father, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he, he gives the gospel there. Of course, I love how Paul succinctly presented the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. This one you can turn to. This is a great one to go to when people try to sell you a gospel that's different from the one that uh, the apostles preached. Paul defined it very succinctly. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you really didn't exercise true faith. All right. Verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, there you have it. In a very succinct way, the gospel. All right? Out of Paul's own lips. So don't tell me, well, Paul didn't preach that. Well, he says it right here, the gospel he preached, okay? And now this is the same gospel that this angel sent from God, yet future, of course, uh, during the tribulation period. God sends an angel to preach to the people of this world the true gospel one last time before, listen, before uh, God's most horrific judgments are poured out upon the people of this world, all right, giving them one last chance it is the good news of forgiveness and eternal life through jesus christ there's only one gospel now i i make a point to say that because i've been cornered a couple of times by people one time comes to mind at a church picnic we threw a church picnic years ago and of course people invite friends we, we want people to bring friends neighbors family give break just want have a good time so i'm sitting there with my hamburger uh, you know, and my potato salad, just minding my own business. And uh, some lady who was new, older lady, sat down and said to me, uh, Pastor, how many Gospels are there? Now, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. And I, I said, well, one. Oh, no, there's, there's two Gospels. Okay. Uh, so you're saying that people got saved in the Old Testament in a different way than they get saved in the New all right, what was the gospel of the Old Testament? Well, well, you, you know the word gospel just means good news. I know that. So what was the good news that saved people in the Old Testament that was different from what they're saved, by, they're saved today? Well, they, they really can't answer that. For, I don't know where they're coming from with some of this stuff, you know? 
And, and so we had a nice debate. But um, there's only one gospel. That's why I make it a point to start with Genesis and move my forward. We could spend a whole night easily on all the places where the gospel is either stated clearly or it's inferred uh, or some part of it that's uh, essential is presented in the Old and New Testament. Genesis 3.15, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That was such an important statement, it was repeated three times in the New Testament. The foundation for the gospel of grace. He believed God, and it was accounted, it was put to his account. Uh, through his faith, the righteousness of Christ. So there's only one gospel, all right? And it's not a gospel of works. It's a gospel of grace. Grace means a gift. We don't deserve it. You don't earn a gift. You just receive it and say thank you. The Lord is handing the human race the most precious gift in the entire world, the gift of eternal life. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to. We just thank you, Lord, and receive it by faith. That's all you do, okay? And this angel will no doubt declare that to the people of the world that they're sinners. Now, the Antichrist and false prophet have been telling them they're gods, you know? But this angel will no doubt declare to the people of this world at that time that they're sinners facing eternal judgment in hell. That's the bad news. But that God has provided atonement for their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, who died for sinners. And that now, because Christ paid the price, salvation, God is able to, to uh, offer salvation freely. as a free gift, right? To anyone who will put their faith in Christ, you can check out John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The preaching of this angel will reach, guys, listen, everyone on the planet, including and especially those who, for whatever reason, have not heard the true gospel preached to them up until this point. All right? Along with the message of the gospel will be an urgent, no doubt, an urgent warning and plea that it is not too late there is still time to repent before God's judgment resumes, but that they must make a decision immediately before it's too late. Verse 7, the angel says, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Now God's given people time just before he resumes his judgments, but now kicks it into high gear. He's giving people one last chance. And so this angel is no doubt going to preach the gospel, yes, but also including in it a, 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 a very um, urgent warning and plea, uh, you know, as, as God does. You know, what did, what did God say even through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18? Turn, please turn from your sin. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. God is pleading with humanity. That's why the, those people say, well, no, we, we, we don't have a free will. God just drags us into the kingdom if he's chosen us. Well, then why is he pleading with people to get saved? If God is the one just forcing irresistible grace, grab them by the scruff of the neck and drag them into the kingdom, whether they want to be saved or not, right? No, no, God is, is pleading with the people of this world. He, I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. Come to me. 
Turn from your sins, right? Why will you die? Uh, there's no reason for people to die and go to hell. Jesus paid the price. If you ignore his righteous gift um, or you reject it, well, you will go to hell, but then that's your choice. Let's not blame God. How could a God of love? We'll talk about that next time. How could a God of love? I don't understand this. The agnostic and the atheists cry. Uh, well, the atheists doesn't believe in God, but, you know, uh, skeptics and, and agnostics and all, you know, can't, oh, I just can't. You Christians talk about God of love, and yet he throws people into hell. We'll talk about that, okay? But God is pleading with people. The angel is pleading. Again, verse 7, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship, listen, him. You can underline that word as I have. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Guys, this seems to be this angel, uh, speaking on behalf of God, of course, is, is seems to be calling the earth dwellers into true, into the true worship of the Creator and away from the false worship of the creation. And that would include the worship of man, who is a created being. I mean, self-worship is idolatry. And the Antichrist, I think, is going to present a gospel that elevates that to uh, a, a higher level than we've ever seen in the history of humanity. But this is the angel's way of saying, look, knock it off with the false worship. Come to the truth. His judgments are going to be coming quickly now. And these are the most horrific of all the judgments. This is no time to drag your feet, Lot's wife. Come on. Come to him. Worship him who made heaven and earth. The creator. And stop worshiping the creation. Remember what Paul said for Romans 1.25? People think themselves so wise, the unbelievers of this world, intelligentsia, professors, and so on, um, who exchange the truth of God for the lie. The lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the Antichrist gospel, the lie. And I'm not going to get into it again. We've talked about it many times. The same lie that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the lie that says, Eve, you will become God. If you just follow my instructions and you are enlightened, of course, in her day, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was how she was going to be enlightened. But we all need to be enlightened, they say. The, to our own divinity. And how do people get in light? Well, crystal balls, Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, you know, a number of different techniques, transcendental meditation, and so on. All these things can help a person get enlightened to their divinity. Now, the Antichrist is not going to reinvent the wheel. He's going to take the same lie that the devil planted in the Garden of Eden. Of course, it's had 6,000 years to grow and develop. That was in its embryonic stage. It has grown. In fact, I use a different metaphor. A seed was planted in the Garden of Eden, which has had 6,000 years to grow and develop, and has turned into a giant tree that's covered the earth. And all the birds of the air have taken uh, uh, lodge in its branches. The birds would be the demons, as Jesus used that illustration in one of the parables. But the idea is that this is the lie, the lie that man is really God or can become God. I believe that's going to be the gospel of the Antichrist. All right? 
And so the angel preaches the gospel to the world. The good angel preaches the true gospel to the world. But listen, in the context of coming judgment, and the context here would be the climactic judgments of chapter 16. Guys, the good news, which is what the word gospel means, the good news is really only understood to be good news when it's seen in the context of the bad news, coming judgment. Let me stop here and just get off for a second. I, I, I want to just talk about this, um, and we'll get right back into uh, Revelation, but it, it dovetails with it, okay? We've talked about this. Today, almost all evangelism is based on the love of God. Almost all evangelism. And we hear very little based on coming judgment. But I'm sure you realize, as we've talked about this, that nowhere in the book of Acts does anyone, none of the apostles or, or anyone else, ever use the love of God as a basis for presenting the gospel. Now, what am I saying? We can never talk about God's love when we share the gospel? I'm not saying that. I'm just wanting you to see, biblically, that the New Testament uh, church, when they preached the gospel, it was really not, and I'm not saying they never did, but you don't find it in the book of Acts where they preached, they evangelized based on God's love. They evangelized based on coming judgment that God loved them so much he sent his son to, to spare them from, but there's judgment coming. And either you run to Christ and take refuge in him, right? In the Psalms, God is a strong tower, the righteous run into him and are safe. The ultimate example of that is Jesus Christ, right? Where we run into Christ by receiving him as our Lord and Savior. We exercise saving faith in him, and we are placed in Christ. We are protected now from the wrath to come. But we don't see any gospel present, any evangelism in the New Testament based on the love of God. And, and I do think there's a balance uh, between the love of God for sinners and the wrath of God poured out against sin. Without any talk of coming judgment, the gospel is reduced from, listen, an emergency alert siren to happy talk. As we have said before, the gospel isn't a message that is designed to make people feel good or happy. If you're at a church when they preach the gospel, you feel good and happy, you're in the wrong church. I'll just say it. Uh, because a church that their whole goal is to make you feel good about yourself and happy, and God exists to make you happy and, and take away all the dark clouds and make every day a wonderful sunshine day. As the Arabs have an old saying, uh, all sunshine makes a desert. And, and, you, and that's not even, you don't want a, a Christianity where there is absolutely no storms. Right. It's only in the storms that we grow, right? But anyways, um, the, the idea that, you know, if it, churches are so afraid to offend people today. and They're so afraid to drive people out of the church, maybe some of the big givers, that they have deleted from the gospel presentation all the negatives, what they think are negatives, you know, sin judgment, little things like that. 
And, and, and all they're left with is happy talk. God loves you and there's a wonderful plan for your life. Isn't that wonderful? Let's all sing. Look, again, the gospel isn't designed to make people feel good or happy about themselves. Listen, it's a brutal indictment, a brutal indictment of our own, of our sinful lives and how that we were so sinful. The only way we could be redeemed was if God himself came down, took a body of flesh and went to the cross and died in our place. What, what am I feeling good about myself? Yet churches that are preaching gospels that make God... One well-known preacher, I'm not going to, he's gone. I'm not going to mention his name. You only pay what something is worth, right? If a car is worth 500 you don't pay 5000 The fact that God was willing to shed his blood, the fact that Jesus was willing to die for you, wow. You are really something. Fingers under the suspenders. Wow, I must really be something. This, he said this, Right? Self-esteem, the New Reformation, was a book he wrote. I won't go any further. Because it's all about self-esteem. It's all about building people's self, making them feel good, very positive, happy talk all the time, right? So you only, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus didn't die because we were worthy. He died because he is a God of love who died for unworthy people. And anybody who could look at the gospel and look at God in the person of Jesus Christ, beaten beyond recognition, beard, beard ripped out of his face, on that cross, bloody, couldn't even recognize he was a human being, Isaiah tells us, and look at Jesus' hand on that cross and go, wow, I must really be something. Look at what he was willing to, look at, he was willing to die for me. Wow, I must be worth a lot. That's ridiculous. As I've said before, well, when the kids were young, we didn't have enough money to buy a video camera. So we took a lot of pictures, okay? And um, we have a whole bunch of them, like a, at least a couple of tubs under our, our bed and other places. What is a picture? It's a piece of cardboard with an image on it, right? Intrinsically, it has no value at all. But yet, if there was a, and I've said this before, let me say it again. If the kids were small and there was a fire in the house, after I got my wife and kids out, and I, I could go back for one thing, I would go back for those pictures. The jewelry, I don't care about that. Big screen TV, I don't care about that. Those pictures are little snapshots of our family history together. Now, they, they're worthless to anybody else. They're, intrinsically, they have no value, but I attach value to them. To me, they're priceless. I, those, they're, they're the most priceless thing that I own, part of my family, and of course Jesus, my salvation. That's us. Intrinsically, we have absolutely no value. The only value we have is the value that God chooses to us to put to our account. He He chooses to value us. I don't have any intrinsic value. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But he loved me so much, he sent his son to die for sinners. And today, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And anything good in me is what Jesus put there when he moved in. It's just amazing to me where we are and how badly the church has apostatized away from the truth to get into ear-tickling and so on. 
Let me say it again, guys. The gospel is not happy talk, and I've likened this to a tornado siren. Okay, we live in the Midwest. There are a lot of tornadoes out this way. Every town has a tornado siren warning system. Now, if that, and that's pretty loud, what they test it every month, right? I think the first of the month, yeah. Um, you've all heard the siren go off. It's loud, okay? If you're in your bed sound asleep at 3 in the morning, this thing uh, comes on, do you feel happy and warm inside? Oh, I love that sound. No, right away fear, right? Fear. Why? Because that siren says something bad is coming. You better take shelter. Run to safety. That's what the gospel is intended to do. It's a warning system. It's, a, it's an alarm. God is saying something bad is coming. It's called eternal judgment. The good news is you have time to flee what's coming that's bad and come to my son for refuge. We, we, don't, we don't see that today in too many pulpits. Um, too many pastors and preachers have stopped urging people to receive Jesus as the one who will save them from hell. Instead, they've turned him into a sanctified butler. I heard one pastor say this, and I thought this was pretty good. I'm going to steal it from him. <laughs> when they should be sounding the alarm, yeah, God loves you. So much he sent his son that you wouldn't have to die in hell forever. Instead, they, they, don't, want, they don't want to go near that because it's too negative. So then what is Jesus? Well, he's, he's the sanctified butler, right? As one pastor said, whose job it is to save people from all the discomforts of life. And as he put it, when you have that view of Jesus, for these folks, prayer then becomes ringing the little bell, calling for butler Jesus to come up Bring them up another pillow. That, that's what it's all about. Forget about taking up the cross, denying yourself, dying to self, right? Following in Jesus' footsteps. Well, I don't, I don't think hellfire and damnation preaching is what we should be doing. Really? Who, who put you in charge? We, we get our marching orders from the Bible. John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, by the way, we're two hellfire and damn, damnation preachers. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven or even love. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to go to hell. Of course, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching repent, right? The whole point in preaching the gospel is to tell people that they are lost and hell-bound. But God loves them and gave his son to save them. Nowadays, many are left because the church isn't doing it much anymore. You just talk to people like that. Uh, God loves you and sent his son to save you. They look at you with a blank look on their face and go, save me from what? Save you from what? We assume a lot. I, I heard a story about a pastor who was preaching once. True story. Talked about evangelism. Older lady was her first week. Pastor was by the door saying goodbye to people as they left the church. She shook his hand and said, oh, pastor, that was so wonderful. Can I just ask you one question? Sure. What does evangelism mean? We assume too many things. 
We're living in a post-Christian world. What we take for granted, a lot of folks have no idea what we're talking about. We should stop talking in Christianese and start trying to explain as best we can what the Bible is really saying, making it simple, right? Nowadays, people say, well, Jesus saved me. Saved me from what? And how does the church respond for the most part? Many pulpits, pastors respond by saying, well, save you from poverty. Save you from depression. From low self-esteem, right? That's what we all need. To be saved from low self-esteem. No. <laughs> to be saved from the fires of hell. Amen. The preaching of coming judgment used to dominate pulpits all across this nation and was used by God to bring about periods of revival and great awakenings in our country. Men like Jonathan Edwards. You've all heard of Jonathan Edwards and his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How would you like to see that in the marquee out in front of the church? How many churches would put that out there? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You think that? In those days, people wanted to hear what he had to say. Well, yeah, okay, I don't want to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Tell me how I can escape that. Today they just keep driving by. You know, they find the church with the rainbow out in front. We love everybody. Come on in. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, said, and I quote, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten, rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The wrath of God burns against them. Wow. Wow. I mean, can you imagine a message like that being preached in this day of political correctness? where the goal of so many preachers is to keep things, again, positive and warm and fuzzy, upbeat and non-confrontational. How does a person escape judgment, the judgment of hell? Well, by repenting and believing the gospel, the, everlasting, the true gospel, the everlasting gospel, the one this angel is going to preach to the people of this world, the very gospel that can save and only that gospel. Now, let me just say this as we come back to Revelation. Um, even though many will get saved in the last half of the tribulation period, called the Great Tribulation, that last half, right? Jesus said that in Matthew 24, verse 21. Great Tribulation, like a woman in labor moving now closer to the birth of the kingdom. The judgments are ramping up, okay, in the second half, right? But God is still trying to save people. God is still giving people an opportunity to repent and get saved. Uh, but for the most part, guys, by this time, many hearts of the unbelievers, excuse me, of the earth dwellers, yes, unbelievers, but of the earth dwellers will become so hard by this time that they will have already by this time passed the spiritual point of no return. One pastor and commentator had this to say. He said, and I quote, after all, by this point, people will have experienced the devastating seal and trumpet judgments. The earth will have been devastated by worldwide wars, famines, earthquakes, uh, resulting in the destruction of the environment, witnessed terrifying signs in the heavens, and been attacked by demon hordes. All of that will result in death on a scale unprecedented in human history. Yet, though they will eventually realize that these disasters are God's judgments, 
people will defiantly refuse to repent. You can read chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 again. It's hard to get your head around that. But God in grace and mercy will call will again call sinners to repentance through the preaching of this angel, end quote. Our God never gives up. Never gives up. He's always trying to win people to himself. Always. Verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. John saw another angel, a second one, who followed the first angel. But unlike the first one, this angel does not preach the good news of the gospel, but rather pronounces the bad news of judgment. Sadly, this implies, guys, that the first angel's message was largely rejected. That's what I get from this. Okay, It's almost as if the second angel interrupts the first angel because no one's responding. The hearts of the earth dwellers have become so hard by this point that the message of salvation isn't penetrating their heart at all but kind of laying on the surface. Remember the parable Jesus gave, the parable of the sower, and how a sower went out sowing the seed. The seed was the word of God, right? Uh, fell on different types of soil, which were different types of hearts. The first uh, soil it fell on was the wayside soil. Now, that was the, the dirt between the fields. That was where people walked. Uh, travelers, they get from one point of, in the area to another point, or one point in the country to another point. The farmers would use these walkways between the fields for various reasons, right? But because of the constant foot traffic and the beating sun, blazing hot in that part of the world, eventually the, the wayside soil became hard as concrete. Any seed that inadvertently fell on this soil couldn't penetrate, laid on the surface, and as soon as the farmer got a little farther down the furrows, the birds who were waiting would swoop in and eat the seed. When Jesus interpreted the parable, he said, that's Satan. People, some people are so hard-hearted that they hear the gospel, it doesn't penetrate, it lays on top of their hearts, you might say, and immediately the devil snatches it away because it can't penetrate. Heart is too hard. By this time, the earth dwellers, guys, are all in, quote-unquote. They're all in for the Antichrist and the dragon, Satan, in their worship, commitment, and loyalty to them. And so in that regard, listen, this seems to be nothing more than a formality. A formality. So that these people can't say in the day of judgment that they were never given a chance. They never heard the gospel. Like, nobody can plead ignorance. Okay? Here God is giving them a chance, one last chance to be saved. And what do they do with it? Nothing. They reject it. They're not interested. They're all in for the Antichrist and the dragon. And the false prophet who's been cheerleading them on for the last who knows how many months. Nobody can say in the day of judgment, I never heard the gospel. Because even if nobody reached their remote village, wherever they lived, gospel, God wrote his gospel in the stars. 
and I'll let you run with that. But here's their chance, and they make no use of it. This proclamation, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, anticipates the events of chapter 18. Again, Babylon hasn't fallen yet, but in chapter 14, it's in the past tense. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. Okay, so Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is a proclamation that anticipates the events of chapter 18. And we'll look at those, uh, Babylon, uh, in detail when we get to chapter 18. But look, in preparation for us studying chapter 18, to kind of set the stage, um, whet your appetite, let me just say that Babylon is God's name for the world system of the beast, both religious and political by which he, Antichrist, rules the world. Of course, the roots of Babylon go all the way back to, Nim to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. You can read about that in Genesis 10 and 11. If you read it in the King James, it says of this tower, let us come and make a tower that will reach into heaven. And skeptics go, you, come on. Nobody can build a tower that reaches into heaven. Well, that's not what it's, say, it's, it's saying. The, the, literal, the literal Hebrew is, let us build a tower that will reach up into the heavens. It, it was a ziggurat, which is a kind of a pyramid-shaped tower, right? And the idea was they would build these structures so that they could ascend, and usually on the very top it was flat, not like a regular pyramid, which is pointed. Uh, on the very top there was a, a, a flat area where they would sacrifice animals to the gods, sometimes people. It was a large tower that would accommodate, people would climb it, and they would worship the sun, the moon, and the stars as gods. This was built by Nimrod, so that the people of the world could worship the sun, moon, and stars as God. Nimrod, in Genesis 10, verse 9, is called a mighty hunter. A mighty hunter. He was the first cult leader on the earth, leading the world into the first organized false religious system. A lot going on here, guys. Um, if you have some time, you want to dig out a Genesis 11 online. We studied this in some detail. Many believe that Genesis 10 verse 9 is saying that Nimrod was a mighty hunter of animals. He was a mighty game hunter, you know. And yet, is that really what the Holy Spirit is telling us about this man? I'll give you a little hint. His name means rebel. Rebel. A mighty rebel that wasn't famous for hunting animals, I guarantee you, but for hunting something far more important and valuable. He became the forerunner and type of another rebel, the ultimate rebel second only to Satan himself, the Antichrist. We'll study that when we get to chapter 17. All right, But years later, the, tower, the area of Babel, the Tower of Babel, that area became Babylon, Babylon, that for a, time became the, for a time became the economic and religious center of the world. Read the first half of the book of Daniel. Again, in chapter 17 and 18, God judges the religious and commercial centers of the world under Antichrist, calling them both Babylon. 
We'll see this again when we come to chapter 17 and 18. The repetition, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, implies certainty and that it is going to happen soon. Now, we, we look back, and you don't have to turn it. Let me just explain it to you. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And he's so shaken, uh, he doesn't know what to do. I mean, they've really shaken him up. And somebody says, well, there's a guy in the kingdom. His name is Joseph. He, he has the ability to interpret dreams. So they brought him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him the two dreams. And, Dan, and uh, Joseph says, Pharaoh, the dreams are really one. They're, 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 they're repeated for, to emphasize certainty. In fact, I'll read to you Genesis 41, verse 32. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. So Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It's a done deal. It's absolutely certain. And it's going to happen quickly. We get that from the scriptures with regard to that repetition. In fact, guys, in the Greek, it's interesting. It actually reads, Babylon fell. It fell. And again, even though it hasn't happened yet, by Revelation 14, um, it's a done deal. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen quickly for when the angel tells people this world, Babylon has fallen. Is fall. What is he saying? If Babylon in the Old Testament, at real, real literal Babylon, was the place of economic and religious, was the economic and religious capital of the world at that time for a time. I don't know where Babylon is going to be during the tribulation period. Are we talking about New York? Are we talking about, uh, some believe it's going to be a Babylon reborn. They're going to actually... Uh, and they, they tell you that they're building, at least Saddam Hussein was, building, he, he, like, he envisioned himself as a, as a Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And so he was tr trying to rebuild Babylon into his former glory. Who knows? They may do that, and it will be a literal uh, resurrection of Babylon. But whatever it's going to be, it's going to be the economic center of the world at that time, commercial center and even religious center. The idea is it's going to be the epitome of man, man's rule. And the angel is saying, look, every, what did the writer of the Hebrews say? God is going to shake this world so hard that everything that can crumble, everything that's material is going to crumble. And only that which is spiritual is going to remain. We're going to see it. Or the world is going to see it eventually. Everything people have invested in their life, all the people, leg of treasures on the earth. Everybody, you know, who thought this is it, wow, you know, uh, what do I do with all my crops? I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger. Then I'll have many goods stored up for many years. I can say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry, kick back. You've got much goods laid up for you can take your ease, right? God said, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then who is going to get all that you work so hard to attain? You've seen the bumper sticker. The one who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. Wins what? Trip to hell? Uh, you know, it's like, okay. God, this, this world has become an idol, a false god. And God is going to destroy it. And, and if 
all the unbelievers who put all their faith and trust in human government to be God, and, and, and all this stuff we see going on today, they're going to be complete losers. Not just of physical wealth, but of their eternal souls. That's why it's so important to get right. The angel is saying it. Hey, the last judgments are coming, and you don't want to be around for these. And so get right. Begin to worship the Creator. Forget this creation worship. Verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, verse 9 reminds us that there's a definite connection. We've talked about this. There is a definite connection between worshiping the beast in his image and receiving his mark on their forehead or right hand. The fact that the angel makes this announcement to the people of this world tells us that no one's going to be tricked into accepting or receiving the Antichrist mark. Now, we've talked about this already. Uh, I'm not saying they aren't deceived by the devil into thinking that the Antichrist is the true Messiah, and the dragon is really God. I'm not saying there's no deception involved at all. It's just that they've been presented the truth. The two witnesses have preached for three and a half years the truth, the gospel. The 144,000, they've been screaming the gospel for, you know, three or four years. Now the angel gets into the act. And from heaven, and we don't know how exactly the angel is going to do it, but flying through the midst of the heavens and declaring the gospel one last time to everybody on the face of the earth. So they have the truth. Now, the Antichrist has been giving them his version of the gospel. So the choice is theirs, right? But nobody is going to be tricked into receiving, you know, the mark of the beast. No one's going to take it casually um, without knowing the consequences. The connection between worshiping the beast and taking his mark is going to be, listen, clear, and the consequence is unmistakable. It's interesting that, in fact, the Greek text reads this way. If any man continues to worship the beast, suggesting that, even at this late stage, there's still an opportunity to repent and be saved. But once they take his mark, there will be no further opportunity for them to repent and be saved. They are then doomed to spend eternity in hell. Guys, it's one thing to be enamored with the Antichrist, even to the point of offering him some superficial worship verb. It's another thing to decide to take his mark and become one of his, listen, full-fledged, totally committed worshipers, noun. The first speaks of what you do. The second speaks of what you are. It's the difference between a person coming to church today and offering God some worship, quote-unquote, 
And then being, as Jesus said in John 4.23, a true worshiper. The first is something you do. The second is something you are. A true worshiper is another way of saying a genuine Christian. Okay? So Antichrist is going to have followers. And some of them, no doubt, are going to be swept up in the wake of all this, you know, this, wow, excitement. This is the Messiah, you know. And, and, and you have your, your flat-out, total committed worshipers of Antichrist. Then you have people like, well, I think he's good, right? I, I, yeah, and, 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 and they offer him some worship, but God knows the heart. And God knows that, okay, they haven't really signed on completely yet. There's still time. There's still an opportunity. They can repent and get saved. And that's what the angel is saying. That's what the angel is basically saying, right? That uh, if any man continues to worship the beast, suggesting that there's still time to repent and get saved. But once they take the mark, it's over. It's over, okay? Um, getting back to Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11. We said a couple weeks ago, why can somebody who commits murder or even is a mass murderer, why can they come to Jesus, receive him as their Lord and Savior, repent of their sins, and be saved? But somebody who takes a number, a mark, they can't be saved. Is taking a mark a worse sin than being a mass murderer? Of course not. As we said... We don't understand all the. Um, we don't understand how all this is going to work, all the technology that's going to come into play. Here, here's again what I think. I don't think the mark is a tattoo on a person's forehead or right hand. I think it's something like electronic. Again, as we talked about this a couple weeks ago. They have the ability to take a tiny little microchip, put it under your skin. You never even feel it. Never even see it. Uh, but it has the ability to have all your uh, medical history, uh, of course, your, your name and, uh, and social security number and all. And so if, if, you're, if you're, uh, you have a heart attack or something, or they find you laying by the side of the road, they can quickly scan your hand, boom, comes up on the computer screen who you are, uh, where you live, your phone number, your date of birth, your social security number, what, all your medical conditions, so they know how to treat you. Sounds great, doesn't it? But whatever can be invented for good can always be turned around and used for evil. And that's what's going to happen. Okay? I believe this technology that they're going to use to give the mark, it's going to be some piece of technology they're going to put in your body. And I believe part of the idea, and this is why I say that people aren't going to be fooled, I believe part of the way they're going to sell this is they have the ability to connect you somehow with the Antichrist um, you know, whether it's through some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, internet or some kind of uh, frequency that they can literally connect you so that you become one with this guy, uh, one, uh, you know, part of his consciousness. And I believe at that point, this little piece of technology is going to, once you sign on to it and they put it in your body and you now you link with the Antichrist and become one with him, it's going to wipe out your ability to have free will. It's not that what you've done is so bad you can't repent and get saved. You won't have the ability to repent. You will never have the desire to repent. They will take away that ability. They will wipe away your free will. 
You say, well, that can never happen. Think again. They have been mapping the brain for a long time. And they have figured out a lot of things about our brains. And I believe they have the ability right now as we speak to do this. Again, please understand as we have to bring this to a close. No one will be deceived into taking the mark of the beast. They will all know exactly what they are doing. And the consequences will be clear and unmistakable. And here are the consequences. Verse 10. Whoever takes this mark, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Those who worship the Antichrist will be forced to drink the wine of the wrath of God full strength. Look, in those days they drank diluted wine all the time. I mean, it was one part wine, three parts water. Why? Because the water was often polluted with microorganisms that would produce or cause gastrointestinal diseases. So they would dilute the water uh, with a small amount of alcohol three parts water, one part wine, to kill the bacteria. This is what, they didn't have many options for beverages. You know, they didn't have refrigeration, right? So they, they couldn't put stuff in the fridge. So pretty much they had water and milk. And the milk you could, you had to drink pretty quick, right? So they, they, they had water, but often they would have to dilute it with um, some wine to kill the bacteria so they didn't get stomach problems. Of course, they did have full strength undiluted wine for when they wanted to celebrate, we'll say, a wedding, or simply when they wanted to get drunk. And I'm talking more about the Gentiles now. Skeptics and atheists often like to point out that Jesus drank wine. Yeah, he did. Remember, one of the accusations was he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. He drank real wine, okay? Which, in their mind, skeptics and atheists believe that because Jesus drank wine, it means that Jesus got drunk. However, these people don't, don't understand that the Jewish people abhorred drunkenness. They abhorred drunkenness and considered it a sin to get drunk. Jesus never sinned by getting drunk. Remember at the end, right before the cross, he told the Pharisees, which of you accuses me of anything? Tell me, what sin am I guilty of? And if he was drunk a lot, that was one they would have hit him with. Our Lord drank wine. It was probably diluted. But if he did have any wine at the, at the wedding of Cana, you know, he made some of that wine. Um, he, he, he never drank to get drunk. Look, we'll finish with this. The cup that the angel is referring to is the cup of God's wrath, of his indignation. Um, it's the cup of his judgment, is what it is. The fact that the angel commands that the cup of God's judgment be filled, be filled with full-strength wine is a reference to wine that hasn't been diluted with water, obviously, but also that hasn't been filtered or strained. Wine that, ha yeah, was not diluted, but also was not filtered or strained. 
wine that was unfiltered still had wine that was unfiltered still had the dregs in it. What are dregs? Well, it's the sediments, seeds, uh, grape skins, etc. You know, when you smash the grapes, there's a lot of stuff that gets smashed into the juice, right? Now they all let it ferment together at for, to, up to a certain point. But you didn't want to leave the dregs in there too long because what would happen was the wine would become even stronger, and sometimes you didn't want that real strong tasting. I'm not saying the alcohol content was greater. It just got very strong in its taste, but the dregs made it bitter. Bitter. And God used that uh, when he wanted to talk about Israel or the Gentiles drinking down the wine of his judgment from the cup of his indignation, um, undiluted, unfiltered, uh, undiluted. Uh, I'll give you uh, three. There's many. Um, I'll just read these to you. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling. It drained and drained it out. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink of it. Well, we're coming to a time during the tribulation period where the nations of the world are going to drink from the cup of God's indignation. This idea of, of this wine that is very strong and bitter because it's talking about judgment. It's talking about judgment. Again, to drink the cup of wrath of God's full strength to drink the cup of the wrath of God full strength means that the unbelieving world, the people of this unbelieving world, are about to experience the most severe judgments of the great tribulation period, which is what chapter 16 is all about. Understand, he's using the imagery of wine that is undiluted, unfiltered, to be a metaphor to say what's coming is going to be the most intense judgments, undiluted. In other words, no mercy at all now. There will be, there will be, these judgments will not be mixed with any mercy. There'll be God's full strength, fury, and judgment poured out on people that have rejected every offer He's ever given them to receive His Son and be saved. No more will any prophet of God be able to pray like Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 2 in wrath, remember mercy. That's always how God. Whenever he was bringing judgment, he always wanted there to be an opportunity for people to repent and get out of the judgment. As we come to this point in the tribulation period, people are going to, at one point now, drink the cup of God's indignation like wine unfiltered, undiluted, um, his full fury. Of course, the ultimate interpretation of this is to understand this judgment is beginning on the earth, tribulation period, but continuing for all eternity in the lake of fire, hell, in the outer darkness. 
I mean, guys, that's what's in view. Full strength, eternal judgment, ultimately. The full fury of God's wrath, so long restrained, so long restrained, will finally be unleashed on the inhabitants of the world full strength. Some people read stuff like this and God's fury and God's wrath. And they come away thinking that God's kind of a hothead, you know? Because, you know, we can be hotheads, right? Listen, God's wrath is not an outburst of emotion where God, you know, kind of just loses it, <laughs> flies off the handle in an uncontrolled rage. God is not a hothead. The Greek word is a word that means a slow-burning anger that has been building and building like into a volcano that's been building in pressure and eventually erupts. God's anger towards man's rebellion, guys, and sin has been building and building over the centuries. But in time past, it was restrained, held back by God's love, mercy, and grace, because that's who he is. But now Revelation 16, it will finally reach eruption. It will explode upon the godless, wicked people of this world. Let me just end there, because there's some other things I want to say, and I don't want to rush through it. So we'll pick up this idea next time, God willing, on God's judgment. And um, what about this eternal judgment in hell? How do people refuse to believe that God is a God that would send people to hell? So we'll talk about that next time. Father... We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy and grace you've shown us. Thank you, Lord, that you pursued us and you kept pursuing us till we surrendered to you. And now we are your children. And we thank you, Lord, that, you know, Jesus died to keep us from the wrath to come. And we thank you. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.